0: Today, we're going to look at the question uh, that many would ask, uh, maybe an objection to Christianity, or even those of us within Christianity, we might puzzle over this question, and that's the question, doesn't the Bible endorse slavery? It's a very important question um, for all of us, and so we're going to think about that this morning. And the short answer to that question is, well, it depends what you think the Bible is. Because uh, in one sense, and sort of the force of this question is that people are aware that in uh, the history of the West in particular, um, the Bible has been used not only to endorse but to promote slavery and some awful things in our history. And um, so we have to go back to the Bible if we're Bible-believing Christians and ask ourselves whether that was appropriate or not. And one of the ways that we get to an answer for that is to we realize that um, the way that the Bible was used to endorse slavery was a misuse of the Scriptures. It was a misunderstanding of them. One of the worst things you can do with the Bible is rip it out of its original context and then just try to understand it from within the basic norms of your own time without giving thought to what it was saying in its, in its own time. And so in order to tackle this question, I think we just have to look at a specific piece of Scripture and let that stand for... Um, how we might read the rest of Scripture in light of this question. So I'm going to have us turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at Ephesians 6, chapter 1, chapter chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, and we're going to consider this uh, in particular, okay, as a question we ask of a particular letter in the New Testament. In Ephesians, we have an ancient letter from a missionary, the Apostle Paul, who is in a prison in Rome, and he's writing to one of the churches that he had helped plant in what's now, I think, West Turkey, or East Greece. It's right there um, on the edge of Greece, um, on the edge of Turkey. And in some ways, we read this ancient letter from a church planter back to his church, and it feels like it could have been written yesterday by any of us, translated well into English. Um, A lot of it just sort of makes common sense to us today. But then there's other parts of the letter, and indeed this passage we're looking at today, Which feel incredibly ancient and outdated and even problematic for our modern ears. And today's passage of nine verses has both kinds of things. There's a common, uh, kind of common sense line that we would hear today about children obeying their parents. We would would often talk about this at swimming pools and in churches and in schools and on the train. And this is not uh, out of the ordinary for us to hear nowadays. But then there's this bit that assumes master-slave relationships, and that part sounds, uh, if not archaic, uh, quite a bit disturbing to our modern ears. And so we have to look at these texts in their original context and understand what they're really going on about. So we don't really take for granted all the things in our culture that would have been taken for granted in the early church. And it is, rightly, kind of disturbing, very disturbing, that parts of the Bible do seem to take slavery for granted. And um, read uncarefully, they might seem to promote slavery as a result. So we need to go back to texts like these in light of these very good questions that people ask about the faith. And we need to hear these passages as a word from God for us today. And to do that, we need to understand them in their context. So we're going to focus on Ephesians chapter 6 in two parts. We're gonna look briefly at what it says about parents and children, and then we're gonna look a little bit more in depth at masters and slaves. We, before we do that, just a few more things that, to remind us about what we're reading. Um, like I said, this is a letter from an imprisoned missionary uh, to one of the churches he planted, and it's written about 60 to 100 years after the birth of Jesus Christ. And this, so this is the early community of Christians still learning how to be Christians. And typically, this letter to the Ephesians is divided up into two parts. People divide it into two, saying that the first three chapters are the boring, systematic theology bits, and then the last three chapters are where it gets really interesting, and you get the practical bits. And that's because we, as modern people, have gotten used to tearing apart sort of theory or theology from practice, as if the two are separate. And it's true that the letter does generally have these two parts, but it certainly is not the case. This letter writer thought of theory or theology and practice as separate. As a matter of fact, the way this letter works is that the, the Apostle Paul in the first half of the letter is explaining the good news of Jesus Christ, what that tells us about God, and what that tells us about humanity, and what that tells us about the church. And after all that theology, there's this pivot in chapter four. Therefore, Live worthy lives of the calling you've received in light of this gospel. And now you pivot to the moral ramifications of that gospel in what's to come. And so the last half of the book is unpacking that. And there we have exhortations about how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth about God and humanity, transforms us, not just personally and spiritually, but also transforms us in our view of our social arrangements and our relationships and our churches and even our politics and economics. And so in the nine verses we're looking at here, we're towards the tail end of the whole letter. And we see that the theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ is informing the moral encouragements and exhortations of this letter right on through to the very end. And we see signals to that each time it says in the practical instructions to children and parents and masters and slaves and husbands and wives, every time it says, do what you're doing, in the Lord, or as to the Lord, or um, in reverence to Jesus Christ. It's reminding us of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has informed what Paul is teaching them to do with their moral lives. And we see this spe- specifically in chapters 5 and 6, and you'll see some bits of this coming on screen, where it's, um, it's clear that the lives they're being told to live are in the pattern of... Uh, Submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that changes the way they relate to one another. In chapter 5, you see um, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sort of the backbone of their whole, whole moral framework. The Chapter 5 begins by saying that they need to live in love as Christ has loved us. And this forms the whole theological outlook that frames their moral lives. And then in verse 21, it says you must therefore submit to or serve one another, each and every one of you, out of reverence for Christ. So that from then on, when it goes on to speak of relationships between husbands and wives and children and parents and masters and slaves, each time it says to do their service to one another as to the Lord, it's um, reminding the reader that they're to do what they're doing in the way of the gospel that Paul has just described, which is to say you do what you're doing in mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. Serve one another as to the Lord. So Paul, in this text, is taking for granted the social arrangements and the economic systems of his time, but he's not leaving them as is. He's not leaving them untouched he's throwing them under the lordship of Jesus Christ and spelling out ramifications for his church. And so in order to understand this, we need to understand what the ancient context was. And those who have read history texts from those times will recognize that what Paul is doing in this particular section, chapter 5 and 6 of Ephesians, is he is adapting existing literature and common sense laws and social norms of his time and he's adapting them for his church. And these uh, were known at the time as household codes. Ancient Greece, uh, ancient Rome had these household codes which laid out the sort of law of the land that built the sort of stable society for the Roman Empire. And these household codes were well known to everyone. These were the codes that made sure that everyone knew that wives submitted to husbands, children submitted to their fathers, And slaves submitted to their master owners. Because the whole society was built around these sort of household slash small businesses that were the stable sort of economic units for the Roman Empire. And so for everything to stay, for the peace of Rome to stay stable, they needed to have these husband, father, master figures who were sort of the basic economic units of that society. And so in order for them to have the authority they needed to run their little... Uh, household uh, small businesses and their lands under the empire, emperor, they had to have these household codes that kept everybody in line. And those household codes are what Paul adapts in Ephesians 5 and 6 for his church. Similar case in Peter where these come up as well, in 1 Peter. And it was common in those days for uh, philosophers to write their own versions of the household codes which would encourage um, the father-husband-master figures to be more kind and the argument was that the, um, the kinder the father-husband masters are uh, to their inferiors then the better society will feel and the better it will run. It's almost like the same argument you would give your boss. If you would just be nice to us then we would all work better. This would be a happier workplace and it would, it would pay off in the long run. And so this was a common argument with the household codes back then And Paul, in this case, is doing something similar to that. He's arguing for a kinder father figure and a kinder master, but he's doing much more than that as well. He's not leaving these household codes as is. In fact, if we look closely at them, we see that he's rearranging them into a new system. He is taking for granted the structures of the culture in his time, structures of power and submission, and this is where it is disturbing to our modern years. But he is also at the same time reordering those relationships so that now, for church people, all of these social relationships now are what they are in the Lord. They come under the Lordship of Christ, which transforms them. Just as Jesus, so we see this with children and parents, just as Jesus had rearranged things in his own teaching so that people would recognize that their family bonds to their parents and to their siblings and to their relatives now came under a greater loyalty, and that was to the family of Christ. You know these scenes in the Gospels where um, uh, Someone will say to Jesus while he's teaching, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside, and Jesus, before he goes and talks to his mother and brothers, he'll say to the group of disciples, say, you know, just so you know, um, my mother and my brother and my sisters are those who join me in the, as believers in God. The disciples are his new primary family. And of course, he still goes and treats his mother and brother and sisters according to family bonds, but he's communicating to us that our church family, our Christian family, um, trumps and sort of reorganizes our relationships, even the givens of our family relationships are now come under the lordship of Christ and our common bonds that way. So here we see in the early church, the Apostle Paul is one of the apostles who's sort of unpacking what that means for Christians in the first century. And so when we look at these, uh, the first five verses here, first four or five verses of Ephesians 6, we see that Paul is teaching the Ephesians that they are first of all brothers and sisters in Christ. And then whatever whatever other social conditions or family relationships they have are conformed to that overall lordship of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't just mean, so you're going to be nicer than you were before Jesus came along it actually has the potential to change everything. Your parents are now your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your children are now your brothers and sisters in Christ, equal to you. And this changes the way you look at those relationships. So in the case of children and parents, um, this means in those days something really profoundly clear and um, uh, culturally contrastive, you might say, um, goes against the sort of norms of culture. It means that children are no longer considered property or laborers for the household economy. They still will have chores and so on and so forth, much more chores than my kids have nowadays, but um, the whole sort of way that their uh, family relationship would appear to them is different because they are not just property. They're not just inheritors of the family business. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the first impulse might be to to ask, well, then doesn't the family fall apart uh, altogether? And in fact, uh, Christians in the first couple centuries were accused of many things, and one of the things they were accused of is being anarchists, because people had this view that Christians sort of uh, didn't abide by the norms of society. But in this case, we see that Paul doesn't do away with uh, parent-child relationships in a healthy home. In this case, Paul actually underlines the fact that in the Lord Jesus Christ, although our uh, fundamental shared loyalty is to our Lord Jesus Christ, his parents and children's, children, there still is a place for and a time for parental authority over children. And he affirms this in his letter to the Ephesians. And he gives three reasons for this, as you can see in the text. The first reason is that this is still one of God's commandments. The Old Testament law is fulfilled in Christ, but it's not abolished. And particularly, the Ten Commandments are upheld as still important for Christians, and honour your father and mother is one of those. The second reason he gives is that God promised, even after uh, the first humans had fallen away into sin, God promised to preserve life on earth. And the main mechanism that God was going to use to preserve human life on earth, and therefore life on earth as a whole, was through the, f- the patterns of, of child rearing this is, not, this is common sense right? this is how God preserves life on earth and that doesn't go away in the New Testament period God still has a history that God wants to unravel and, and Christians are going to be a part of that like everybody else and so parents will have and raise children and children will obey parents until they're of the age to do, have their own children and the cycle goes on and Paul affirms this this is still because of God's promise to preserve life on earth And the third reason he gives is that it's just right. And when Paul says this, he's just appealing to common sense. It's not always the case that sort of cultural common sense, you know, streetwise things that everyone would say are true for Christians. But in this case, yeah, everyone thinks parent-child patterns are common sense in ancient Rome, and Christians agree. We have different reasons for that, but we agree. But in these verses, Paul does not leave even parent-child relationships untouched. In fact, there are some uh, contrasts with the ancient household codes of Rome. Paul is reconfiguring the the whole approach of the Christians in Ephesus to their parent-child relationships. And we see hints of this uh, when he talks to fathers. He tells fathers not to provoke their children to anger. In those days, what you would have heard him saying is that you're not going to be harsh with your kids, giving them work orders, and strict uh, physical discipline of the kind that would turn them against you and and um, and provoke them to anger, you're going to treat them now like fellow disciples of Jesus Christ. You don't revoke your parent parental authority over them, but you treat them as people that you're bringing up in the Lord Jesus. And this is um, just one example of a common refrain in the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament, which have led to church traditions about what we do with children and how we even look at parenthood. This, along with other passages, is what is kind of behind um, statements such as are made by uh, the theologian Stanley Hauerwas, who when he talks about Christian families, he says, whether your parents by natural birth or not, all Christians believe that they they have to receive um, the call to Christian parenthood as a vocation And so he says, really, for Christians, all kids are adopted, whether they're your birth kids or not. Why? Because Christians accept that, um, yes, there are natural circumstances that might make us biological parents, but what we want, what we need to be able to do is give those kids back to the Lord and ask uh, for God to give us a vocation and a calling and the energy and the strength and the wisdom to receive the office or the calling of parenthood. And this is why the Christian tradition has arisen, where we dedicate children, or in many other traditions, um, to baptize our kids. It's because we're repeating the cycle of what we learned, not just from the early church, but even from, the, from Israel, where, like Hannah bringing Samuel to Eli to dedicate him and to give him to the ministry, when we dedicate our kids, we bring them to the church, and we actually give them to the church for a few minutes, up here on stage or whatever, Uh, And the church in that moment agrees to share responsibility with us for raising those kids in the Lord. And then, pretty quickly, the pastor gives the kid back and we receive the vocation now to be parents in the Lord, whether we're the birth parents or not. And in that sense, all kids are adopted in Christian families. All, all, All callings of parenthood are taken as a calling from God. Um, that have the same moral and um, spiritual force as the call to minute to be a pastor or a missionary, and that 's how radical the church has understood the sort of reordering of family relationships to be that we 've received from the from the early church from Christ himself and if that 's the case and you know and most of, most of what app happens after that carries on. In a way that really reflects many of the norms of our culture. Parent child relationships, um, um, thankfully, have been upheld uh, in our culture for the most part in a good way. But it's a radical shift of mentality for Christians, what they're thinking, they're doing when they're parenting, and churches as well. And if that's the case with parent child relationships, we need to be attentive to the kinds of um, reordered thought. reframings that Paul might be bringing into the uh, church's mind when it comes to social norms of slavery. So let's pay attention to that as we turn to the second part. And let's not kid ourselves. In the first century, in the Roman Empire, slavery was a brutal thing. In the ancient world, it was brutal. And even when you were a slave with a very kind master... The fact is that um, you were not uh, given the same dignity and respect and and worth as non-slave people. Um, You were not just a lifelong servant. You were property. If you were going to have the kind of wholeness and personhood that others had, it was going to have to get bought for you. You couldn't have it for yourself. You didn't have that dignity yourself. And so even if you were well-treated and empowered by your owner, Um, such that you could actually maybe have on the face of it a better life than some of the free laborers out there who had horrible, miserable jobs. At the end of the day, you were jealous of them because your livelihood and your worth were very precarious. You were not considered a whole person. So on one hand, when we turn to ancient texts like this, um, biblical texts, it's kind of disappointing that Paul doesn't just tell slaves to run away and put an end to the system of slavery. It, it seems odd to us and maybe even more disturbing um, looking back after 20 centuries of history when we see these texts um, in light of what turned out to be the case, which is that Christians over the centuries have, have actually used texts like this to justify ongoing practices of slavery and even the taking, of new, taking it to new depths with the taking of African slaves in the the 16th and 17th and 18th century. And so we look back at texts like this and people around us in Calgary who would uh, consider the question, doesn't the Bible endorse slavery as an objection to Christianity? They have a point. Texts like this have been taken as support for some horrible things in our history. And so we as Christians have to go back to these texts and ask whether it was meant to be as such. And a careful reading reveals that Paul uh, was not leaving slavery untouched. Here's a guy who's in prison, and he doesn't have sort of authority over the economy or the state, but one thing he does have authority over is the churches he planted, and when he writes to them, he doesn't leave the household codes untouched. As a matter of fact, when we look closely at what he says, we see that he's taking those household codes and he's letting the gospel transform them not from the top down, through a th- whole sort of reorganization of the Roman Empire, as if he had the power to do that, but from the inside out. Not only from the inside out of the persons who are changed by the gospel, masters or slaves, children or parents, but also from the inside, of, uh, inside out in terms of how the church communities would affect their neighborhoods. So the, we can read these texts and see that a day could come when Christians would be able to affect the economic systems around them. But even before they have such a voice to change the structures of society, they get on with it within the church. They let the gospel transform their relationships. So what we see here as we look closely is that Paul plants the seeds of the Christian gospel in the hearts, minds, and bodies, and churches of his time. And we see this when he comes to these words, slaves obey, and that sounds abrupt, and it may not even seem to us at all like he's changing anything about the household codes, but we have to recognize that this is the first time a household code had addressed a slave as a person at all. They're not even usually addressed in these things. In fact, he addresses them not just as receivers of the letter, but as whole persons whose loyalty is now to the same Lord that their masters serve. This is so countercultural at the time. And it's it's like that they've been brought out or they've been bought out or ransomed from under their master's noses. And they'll now serve their masters, but as freedmen and women, not as property or as inferiors. Notice between verses five and ten the slaves are addressed with regard to their hearts, their souls, their wills, their minds, and their strength, all the components of Jesus' great commandment to love the Lord your God as a whole person and to love your neighbors as such as well. And then in verse nine, it says that masters are to treat their slaves the same. In other words, we're supposed to allow those words from chapter five to resonate forward into this address, which said you're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The original audience would have been floored by this because he's saying, masters, you're now in Christ, slaves, To your slaves. And he underlines this very clearly. Uh, Even for us, just reading this uh, in English translation 20 centuries later, we can see the point. With your maker in heaven, your master in heaven, there's no partiality. The literal phrase in the original language is: with the master in heaven, there's he's no respecter of persons. In other words, God does not show partiality. God does not show regard for your social and economic status. In the church, you don't play by those rules. Did Paul overturn the system? No. Did he sow the seeds of the gospel whereby that system could be subverted and overturned in time? Yes. So what relevance does this have for us today? Well, in the first place... Um, We should be able, when people have this objection, we should be able to say, well, no, the Bible does not endorse slavery if we read it properly, have a proper understanding of it. But also it, it is relevant for us today because we have our own issues in our day that we need to go back to the books to understand afresh. Otherwise, we take too much for granted about the systems of our time, and we forget that the gospel wants to always bring us under the lordship of Christ, in whatever the givens of our life might be, whether it be family relationships or social systems. And we need help with this in the 20th century in particular because we need to remember that we read the the Bible now not just as people who are responsible for their neighborhoods, we read the Bible now as global citizens, don't we? We're very aware now after the last few centuries that everything we do has some sort of knock-on effect for somewhere else in the globe. So we need to learn to read the Bible along with the oppressed peoples, along with the peoples that actually our society has had a hand in oppressing over the centuries. And so one of the the sections of theology that helps us to do that is known as liberation theology. Liberation theology is that theology that has been done by the poor and the oppressed to help us to read the Bible without taking for granted the systems of oppression that has been wrongly used to sustain and, and, and carry on. And there's many forms of liberation theology in our day, but I want us to think in conclusion about a story from um, Britain in the 1600s that I think is really enlightening for us uh, when we think about the issue of slavery. Um, Part of the reason why I want to tell this story is because when I was living in England, I did some digging into this question because what I was perplexed about was this. How did well-meaning Christians in the 1600s get convinced to not only go along with but support the practice of ripping Africans out of Africa and taking them and selling them as slaves in the Americas. Because the Portuguese and the Spanish had been doing this in the 1500s to some degree, but transatlantic slave trade did not take off until the mid 1600s when Britain got involved. And after that, 80% of all slaves sold to the Americas Um, were um, bought, or not bought, they were uh, hijacked and sold by the British with the support of the church. And one thing that's always perplexed me is, how did we do that? How did we go along with that? That's my history too. One of the things I wondered is, what happened to the Bible in that period? Was anyone reading the Bible in that period? Of course they were, but what happened? So I did some digging while we were living over there, and it turns out, um, one of the pivotal moments actually happened in the area around where my family lived in England, uh, which was Bristol, and there were a group of Christians um, who were known as the levelers and the diggers who had protested the rise of the slave trade even before it had got that far. And I was amazed to read some of their pamphlets. They didn't have uh, email or um, internet back then, as you're, as you're aware. The way they tried to influence one another was through pamphlets or tracks, right? And so there was a couple of pamphlets that were written by the levelers and diggers in 1648 and 1649, which I found fascinating. And um, what was fascinating about them is that they were um, explaining their practice of digging up fences on the land. That might sound... Um, you wouldn't like it if someone came and dug up the fence on your yard. Uh, um, you'd, you'd want them to give a defense for what they were doing. Well, they got their name levelers and diggers because what was happening back then is that there used to be common lands that uh, the people who didn't have a lot of wealth or property, they would just share them as farmland and they would grow crops to support their families. And what was happening in the mid-1600s is that the wealthy were starting to fence off the common lands for their own use so that they could in turn sell those goods to the poor. And we take for granted that system now, but at that time this was um, not fully legal and it wasn't right in their eyes. And so the levelers and diggers got that name because they just went every morning and dug up the fences or overturned the fences, they leveled the rock fences and they wrote pamphlets to support what they were doing, and these pamphlets made arguments from Scripture, and they said things like, no man was to be lord over his own kind. We reject this system as unchristian. Another pamphlet argued with reference to the Old Testament, saying we're doing what we're doing, because we believe as Christians we should have land on which we can work together and eat together. And this was a a protest that that got more and more heated as the struggle went on. And they began to speak of it as the end times. And they used texts from Revelation to support their argument that this is a key moment in, in our history. You can either serve the Antichrist of bondage, curse, and slavery, or you can s- serve the spirit of Jesus Christ, which is community and freedom. And the levelers and diggers were making their stand. But we don't know much about the levelers and diggers now, and their voice Their sort of prophetic voice in the church is but a faint whisper in history now. And you know why? They lost. They were written off. Their other nickname was ranters. They happened to be fairly charismatic. They got a little excited in their worship. And this was just one of the many reasons where people were able to sort of assume that they were lunatics. They needed to get with the times, learn trickle-down economics. And uh, they were misheard and unheard. And it was, that was the pivot moment, actually, as we look back in history. Because after the 1640s, Britain got involved in the slave trade. And it's sobering and sad that a more full debate was not had about the words of Scripture and what they recommend to church people. And it's sad to me because there was a witness for Christ to speak against slavery and the system that, that led there, but it was drowned out by economic self-interest and belief in sort of the British Empire. So when I read about that now, I find it sobering and I find it convicting because we need to do what we do every week in church, which is come under the word of Christ afresh to ask, how does this address us and the norms of our time? Because People ask the question, doesn't the Bible endorse slavery? I can say, well, yeah, churches went along with it, but there's always been a witness in the church, and the Bible has been the force for that witness. So let me conclude with a story of another thing I discovered as I was doing the study uh, over in Britain. I read about this church that actually happened to be around the corner from um, where we lived in Bristol. It was called Broadmead Baptist Church, and in the 1640s there was this businessman, a sugar trader named Edward Tyrrell, who became an elder at Broadmead. There's now Broadmead Baptist Church, near our home there in England. And he wrote journals that we still have preserved to this day. Here's a picture of, of Bristol, England, where he lived. <coughs> and in his journals, he records about um, what happened to him when he started going to Broadmead Church and how it changed his life. Because in his journals, from that crucial, pivotal moment in English history, we see that he went to church, became an elder, and he was confronted by what he says in his words, with one memorable member of Broadmead Church named Francis, who was a somewhat rare uh, participant in churchly life. Why was she a somewhat rare participant in churchly life? Because she wasn't, wouldn't normally in those days have been a full-fledged member of an English church. She was a woman, an Ethiopian, and a maidservant. But he was uh, incredibly impressed with her sincere conversation about the scriptures and her charity among the people. And he says that she was such a remarkable, Christian, uh, a remarkable Christian convert that when she died in the mid-1640s, her last words to the church were like a prophetic word to them. They left such an impression that Edward Terrell records her last words in his journal and he, he considers her words on par with any sermon he'd ever heard. She said, and she charged the church to seek that the glory of God be dear to them and that they don't lose the glory of God in their families, their neighborhoods, and all the places where God casts them, end quote. And Edward Terrell knew what he meant, and he records in his journal that what she was saying is that the gospel community that they had at Broadmead Church, her final prayer was that they would know that kind of shared life in Christ across not just church life, but their families, neighborhoods, and into the cultural and societal norms. The gospel broke down divisions between families and neighborhoods. And at Broadmead Baptist Church, they had a glimpse of this because of the community they shared um, through the powerful witness of Francis. And so Edward Terrell um, wrote this. He said, In our days... We see experimentally in Francis what the scriptures have pointed us to. The scriptures make good that God is no respecter of persons, but among all nations, Christ is shared. It's such a powerful witness at Broadmead Church of the kind of thing that the gospel brings about in our communities. But unfortunately, the torch that was passed on by Francis would not be able to blaze, except maybe as a candle in the corner, in the dark, because the British Empire and the transatlantic slave trade was just about to take off. And the digger's slogan, that no man was to be lord over his own kind, was very quickly perverted by European sciences that um, charted the races in a kind of hierarchy of civilization and enabled white supremacist logic to get the whole slave trade going. And that was just after that period when the, the, the sort of blazing torch of the witness of Christ, of people like Francis and the diggers, was shoved in the corner so that economic interests could carry on. And I think it's a sobering word for us in our day as we look back. But the fact that there were witnesses reading the scripture against the norms of their day and in favor of the kind of freedom and shared love in Christ that we would expect... Um, should continue to shine brightly for us in our day as we consider the challenges of our time. So does the Bible endorse slavery? No. And so neither should we. But we need to be good Bible readers. We need to be a true Christian community in order for that light to shine. So let me close in prayer. We pray, O God, that in our time we would... um, Have the wisdom, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit in our midst as churches, as we come to the Word of God to hear You speak to us afresh in our time, with the same power that You spoke um, to the early church in their time, and that where there are places where we need to be shaken out of our cultural norms, uh, in order to to be refreshed in the power of the gospel as as it applies to our family lives or our social lives. We pray we will have the courage and the insight as a church to see when you're doing that, so that we may be on the side of Jesus Christ in our time. And more importantly than that, even that we would be a witness as a church, a light for the body of Christ in our lost and fractured city and world. We pray this not in our own power or even trust in ourselves, but fully with trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord, pray for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. Amen.